Hello, my name's Sumit Das. I'm a paediatric anaesthetist in Oxford, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast from Belfast, the APA annual meeting. Uh, joining me today is Dr. Chris Gildersleeve, who's going to talk to us about intravenous fluid therapy in children. Uh, Chris is a consultant at Children's Hospital in Wales um, and was involved in developing the APA consensus guideline on perioperative intravenous fluid management in children. Um, Chris is also Honorary Secretary of the APA uh, and is very active outside the uh, operating theatre as well with interest in fell running, cycling and taekwondo. So I'll try not to upset you, Chris. Um, So we'll just start really by um, just historically, can you start by telling us how we've done as anaesthetists with sort of managing intravenous fluids in children? Well, actually, we haven't done very much apart from sort of move with the crowd like sheep from Wales, I suppose. Um, I think you can trace contemporary practice as far back as 1957 when Holiday and Seeger published their, um, their article, which was a, a review article, a narrative review article in the journal Paediatrics. And they adjudicated on the fluid requirements of a hospitalised child. Mm-hmm and from that generated the well-known equations for fluid delivery, which we know well and love, um, sort of 100 mils per kilo per day for the first 10 kilos, 50 per kilo per day for between 10 and 20 kilos, and then 20 per kilo per day for each subsequent kilogram. Sure. Or expressed as often by anaesthetists, a 4, 2, and 1 rule, 4 mils per kilo per hour, etc., etc., and that gives you your hourly fluid requirements. And... Alongside that was there, they did some work on breast milk and urinary sodium excretion and looking at the sodium content of breast milk, which is somewhere between 13 and 14 millimoles per litre, that kind of spawned where they went in terms of their recommendation for the type of intravenous fluid that um, we should deliver and that ended up as 4% dextrose, 0.18% saline or 4 and a fifth as it became commonly known. And so for years and years and years, people's default position was using four and a fifth uh, saline or even the half and half mixture, 2.5% glucose with 0.45% saline. And they would deliver that to children requiring intravenous fluids regardless of cause. And do you think um, we were well-founded in giving these children glucose-containing I think it was born of, partly born of fear, but also born of habit. I mean, the, 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 the concern, especially for smaller children, was that, uh, that, that without some regular input of glucose, they would become hypoglycemic. Um, but the reality is that most children, unless they're really unwell, um, uh, are small, stressed, or starved, or premature... Um, uh, can maintain normal glycemia uh, in, the, in, the, in the face of starvation. And it's only these really small, stressed infants that tend to be vulnerable to hypoglycemia. But so what happened is that the, the default prescription is that everybody got glucose mm. just to protect the small number of the, those that actually really needed it, um, rather than try and work out who needed glucose and move from there. Sure. So can you tell us um, how NICE became involved in this topic? NICE, NICE came to the game 
uh, a little late on in proceedings because in the early 2000s um, there have been a couple of events that um, have pushed the agenda towards the creation of uh, fluid guidelines for children. There was Alert 22, which was released in 2007 by the NPSA, as was then, um, arguing against the, uh, the storage and use of 4 and 5th uh, saline on paediatric wards. And that was stimulated by a, a, some morbidity and mortality in the paediatric population related to hyponatremic encephalopathy, mm -hmm. um, largely due to the delivery of hypotonic solutions to children. There was, of course, the sad series of deaths in Northern Ireland that subsequently spawned the Northern Ireland Inquiry. And then in 2012, the MHRA produced a much harder-hitting um, uh, recommendation, actually contraindicating the use of four and a fifth normal saline um, in all but specialist paediatric areas, particularly intensive care and, and, and high-dependency unit. So NICE came along... Largely, I think they'd, they'd just been deliberating on the creation of adult intravenous fluid guidelines, and mm -hmm. so it seemed a natural progression to do children, but it did take a little bit of a push from a variety of organisations, including the APA, the Royal College, and some governmental organisations to, to sort of nudge them over the line to, uh, to, 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 to take on this guideline. Sure. And just briefly, um, how, how does NICE go about um, developing best practice and issuing the guidelines? Um, it's a, NICE works to a, a very tight framework. It's important to recognise that it's a, a non-departmental public body. Okay. Um, uh, originally it was set up as a health authority, but now it's a non, in statute, it's a non-departmental public body, which means... Um, it is a, it's a, a, accountable to its sponsor department, which is the Department of Health. But that's where the connect with clinical practice ends. So it is important to say that all the committees and the guidelines produced as a result of um, uh, the committee's adjudications are independent of government and independent of that superstructure. Um, okay. So... Um, when they develop guidelines, they are developed using a very tight framework. In fact, there's a nice booklet that, that defines the, 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 the framework that they develop guidelines to. And so the basic schema is this. You create a scope for the guideline, um, which is the, 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 describes broadly the, um, the terms of reference, if you like, for the, for, for the guideline. And then once you've um, developed the scope... Um, you can, there's a, a four-stage process where you develop the review questions and the outcomes you're looking for in the literature search. You actually search for the, for the evidence that you want in, in, based on these questions. Then that evidence is reviewed for the effectiveness of the interventions that you're, you're asking for. And finally, the recommendations flow from that or de are developed from that. Um, and how does that follow in the face of a, a paucity of high-quality evidence? Yeah, and this is a particular problem, not just in the guideline that we were um, uh, creating, but it's across the paediatric piece, really. There's mm. often a lack of evidence mm. to support much of what we do in paediatrics and paediatric anaesthesia. So um, in, the in, the, in the absence of high-quality evidence, or even low-quality evidence, 
then it's um, the process is the formation of a guideline by consensus, and mm -hmm. there is a process by which um, the members of the multidisciplinary guideline committee use their knowledge of pathophysiology and physiology, yeah. what is available out there in terms of current guidance and expertise, what evidence there is to formulate something that fits with current practice and is, would be acceptable to the various disciplines involved in the, in the, in the creation of the guideline. And that's a, um, so recommendations developed by consensus will have a link as far as they can to what evidence there is and a link to the, what documentation there is out there in what we would call grey literature, sort of the existing guidelines, um, national guidelines and other, and sure. other institutions. Sure. Okay, let's move on to what our audience uh, is, is, is dying to know, really. So what, what, what fluids should we be now using in a sort of resuscitation scenario and just in a routine maintenance case? Okay, for, for resuscitation, um, the, the recommendation we have formulated is, is to use 20 mils per kilo over less than 10 minutes. And the solution you should use is glucose-free uh, crystalloid and containing a uh, sodium concentration of between 131 and 154 millimoles per litre. So that's the standard okay. delivery for resuscitation. I think it's, we're moving a little bit away from the old APLS dogma to get yeah. 20 mils per kilo, 20 mils per kilo, 20 mils per kilo. And I think after you've given that initial bolus of fluid, it's important to reassess the situation before you proceed. And also, while you're doing it, consider other uh, conditions that may suggest that you should reduce that initial volume to, say, 10, 10 mils per kilo. So, for example, if you've got a child who's in cardiac failure or you've got a child who's got renal disease or acute kidney injury, you may, that may mitigate against giving a bolus of 20 per kilo and, say, reduce that to 10 per kilo. Um, in, in neonates, we advocate the same approach as a glucose-free crystalloid, okay. sodium concentration the same, and between 10 and 20 millimoles per kilo over 10 minutes. Okay. Um, just staying on crystalloids, uh, there was quite a lot of controversy when the FEAST trial was published. Mm. Did, did, did that come into the discussions? Yes, very much so. Um, uh, and um, the, the, the data from FEAST is very interesting. Mm. It's fascinating to, mm. to read. Um, I think the, the, the bottom line is that most of the evidence that, that came from FEAST, and there are other similar pieces of evidence from the third world um, uh, out there, is that we would consider most of that evidence indirect with respect to the population that we're dealing with in, in the UK, in that most of the children in these studies, including FEAST, had dengue fever or malaria. I think something like two-thirds of the patients enrolled in FEAST had malaria, yeah. and they were being dealt with in health systems which are very different to the UK, and often following a pathophysiological pathway which would, would be very, very different to an acute presentation in the, a standard UK emergency department. So we felt, given that that evidence was indirect, um, we felt we couldn't use that to recommend um, a change in practice in 
the nice guidelines for which is basically for UK practice. Okay, thank you. Um, so the the take home message is isotonic crystalloid, um, including in neonates. Um, can I just briefly ask you about albumin, which is showing a bit more of a resurgence, certainly in my hospital? Yes. Um, there was no evidence in the literature to show any benefit from using any other fluid other than crystalloid. Okay. okay. So that's straight. Fair. And the other thing to say is there's no evidence to suggest benefit of one crystalloid over the other. So the broad-based recommendation of sodium between 131 and 154 actually mm-hmm. catches sodium chloride, Hartmann's, etc., sure. etc. Et okay. And um, you touched on it earlier, but I just want to clarify, um, should we be adding glucose, and if we should, at what age group? But I think I, think I know what you're going to say. I think not, not for resuscitation, certainly. Um, if you're moving on to maintenance, maintenance. then um, there would be subsets of the population which we would consider using um, glucose. For all children outside the neonatal age group, maintenance, initial maintenance, should be, again, with isotonic uh, glucose-free crystalloid, okay. the same sodium concentration that I've already mentioned, rate according to the holiday Seeger formula, which we okay. mentioned earlier. In the neonatal age group, then we would recommend using between 5 and 10% glucose with that, um, with that uh, uh, isotonic crystalloid. So you would use, say... F- normal saline with 5% glucose as your standard maintenance solution. Okay, thank you. Um, so for, for departments that are considering um, changing their fluid regimens and what they're stocking, how, how would you um, advise that they ensure these guidelines are implemented? Okay, um, it's all very well just dumping these guidelines in your inbox, <laughs> yeah. for want of a better word, yeah. but actually yeah. getting them... getting in 141 pages. 141 pages in your inbox, and it is, um, yes, it's a, it's a good read. Um, <laughs> so the reality is you've then got to influence practice or inf- even influence a change of practice in hospitals and where um, current practice is certainly with glucose-containing solutions, is embedded in all our wards. If I went down to one of the wards in the children's hospital, a uh, standard paediatric ward, I would guarantee that every child on intravenous fluid, um, certainly from the medical side, would be on 5% glucose, 0.9% saline, or half and half saline dextrose. Um, uh, I think you'd find in the post-operative ward children on Hartmann's or saline from theatre, usually prescribed by the anaesthetist, mm. but you'll also find some that have been changed to a glucose-containing solution. That, that is the difficulty we're having, is that the wards just don't stock, stock the isotonic fluids, yeah. and, that, and that we need to get a sea change there. Mm. So implementing these standards is one of the key priorities of, of any NICE guideline. So the way they... they play it is that they try and identify a subset of standard recommendations that they really want to push as what we call implementation standards. So, for example, there are 38 recommendations in total in the guideline, and we can pull five or even eight of those out as keys for implementation, and those are the things that are pushed on the website together with a lot of information um, with respect to how to implement um, the delivery of 
guidelines according to the, um, the recommendations. The other strand that we follow on from that is the um, development of quality standards. Mm-hmm. Now, quality standards are, again, a nice product, but they're by an independent multidisciplinary committee to which members of the guideline group that I was a member provide evidence. And then they formulate standards, um, usually only a handful, four or five, um, which are used primarily to guide departments and trusts as to the sort of service that they should be providing and would be appropriate to audit performance against, and also to provide for commissioners to commission services which provide the sort of specification recommendations that are contained within the NICE guidelines. So there are several strands which are intermeshed, which help to drive delivery and implementation of the standards. Thank you. Um, So just finally, if if there's one take-home message or recommendation you could give to our listeners uh, regarding these new guidelines, what would that be? Yeah. um, This first was written about in the adult guidelines, which came out a couple of years before the paediatric guidelines. And this is the um, one of the key take-home messages in both sets of guidelines, and that is that um, uh, there should be an IV fluids lead in each trust, trust, and that person is responsible for for training, for governance, for audit and review of the any IV fluid service that is prescribed. And um, if there's one thing that will help drive standards onwards and upwards, um, then it is that that one thing is to, to appoint an IV fluids lead and let them help to develop um, standards within each institution. Okay, Chris Gildersleeve, thank you very much. Thank you.